1: Hey guys, Dr. Zubin Damania, Dr. Paul Offit returns for our usual update conversations on the vaccines. Paul, welcome back, man. Thank you. Pleasure man, so here. dude, there's so much going on. Uh, it's always great to have you back. You always teach us a whole lot. First off, it looks like CDC just came out with the recommendation that everyone 65 and over ought to be having access to this vaccine. What are your thoughts on that?
0: That's a great idea. I think the the, the, the struggle here is, is is threefold. One, mass production, mass distribution, mass administration. Right now, the hang up, frankly, is mass administration. I mean, we only have about 30% of the vaccine that's out there being given And I think people are trying to sort of go 1A, 1B, 1C. You know, first we'll do do the uh, people who are healthcare workers and and people who live and work at long-term care facilities. Then we'll go to essential workers. Then we'll go to... And I think that that, uh, we can't do it that way. I think we just have to just get as much vaccine out there as we can, get as much herd immunity from vaccination as we can. So I'm all up for loosening that.
1: Yeah, so this idea that then let's just cut to the chase and vaccinate as many at risk people as we can makes sense, which then again implies, and this is an ongoing conversation we've had since the beginning of the pandemic, which is you're pretty confident now sitting on the FDA advisory committee, looking at the data, going through this and, and watching our conversation evolve over these months. Like, okay, what are we concerned about? Are we worried that, you know, this quote unquote rush to the vaccine and operation warp speed and all this? And So it sounds to me now like you've gotten vaccinated, I've gotten vaccinated, you're comfortable with the safety and efficacy of the two new mRNA vaccinations that are approved uh, for EUA in the U.S.?
0: Yes, I think the only thing I I think um, we're looking at, and now you have more than 7 million doses of the vaccine that's been distributed. And if you go by the sort of Maurice Hilleman law, Maurice Hilleman, I think, is the father of modern vaccines, having done the primary research and development of nine of the 14 vaccines we give to children. His law was, quote, I never breathe a sigh of relief until the first three million doses are out there. Okay, so we're there. I, I do think we need to follow up on the Bell's palsy issue. I mean, that was something that was seen in those two, uh, phase three trials. Um, haven't heard about it since. So this may have just been a coincidental and not causal association in those phase, phase three trials. And that's a relief if that's true.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny because you mentioned Maurice Hillman's uh, 3 million statement early on in our conversations, and it's good to see that that actually came to fruition and we can breathe a sigh of relief. You know, it's a big deal. I mean, this is one of the great triumphs of modern uh, science so far. Now you brought up Bell's palsy. What about the anaphylaxis issue um, that has been raised particularly with the Pfizer vaccine, but I imagine with both?
0: Right. So, so, um, the, uh, CDC just put out a missive, uh, uh, three days ago in Morbidity Mortality Weekly Report on an update on anaphylaxis. And what they, uh, said was that, um, about, there's about uh, 11 cases of anaphylaxis per million doses, roughly. And, you know, that's, that's, that's a little scary. The background rate is roughly one case per million doses of any vaccine. Although it may be that we're looking a little more closely at this vaccine than other vaccines because Mm. it's under so much scrutiny. Um, I mean, it's a little, it's frightening certainly to have a severe anaphylactic reaction. The good news is it happens immediately, usually within 15 minutes. The other good news, it is a treatable phenomenon with epinephrine. So, Um, And certainly none none of those people who've had an anaphylaxis reaction to the Pfizer vaccine have died. I I haven't seen a lot of anaphylaxis with uh, the Moderna vaccine. There was one case in, um, I think there was a a, a physician in the Northeast, and I'm not sure with Moderna's vaccine, but I'm not sure that was anaphylaxis. He, He brought an EpiPen with him. He'd had a history of anaphylaxis in his past. He was nervous. He had sort of some tingling in his hands. And so he gave himself an EpiPen. Um, which may have just been hyperventilation. I'm not sure that was anaphylaxis, but needs to be followed up.
1: Yeah, it might be more than nocebo effect, right? The negative placebo effect and anticipation of that. And yeah, it, it is interesting. And do you think that the anaphylaxis, the... It, it like you said it could be that we're just really scrutinizing this vaccine it's probably one of the most scrutinized vaccines in history because all eyes of the world are on it but the question is are you know let's say it's real um you know 11 x increase in rate of anaphylaxis do you think it's the lipid nanoparticle or a, the polyethylene glycol what is it in that vac in that vaccine
0: right I think it's the, the, the at least the going Um, feeling by allergists who know much more about this than I do is it's the, it's the polyethylene glycol component of the lipid nanoparticle. Um, it's interesting that, that although both the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines have the polyethylene glycol, it it is in a different configuration. So if there's, if there's a difference between those two vaccines in terms of anaphylaxis, that may be why.
1: Mm, interesting, yeah. So that, that makes sense. Again, we can kind of science this up and try to get to the root of it and figure out, you know, and again, like you said, this is treatable. We're watching people, you know, when I got mine, they had me sit there for 15 minutes and, and be careful. And I was talking to my daughter and telling her how to do CPR on me and stab me. And I, I said, I want it right in the heart, like in Pulp Fiction, you know, the full, <laughs> the full epi. Right. So relating to that now, that's less Humorous is this um, reports that have circulated on social media of uh, an obstetrician who unfortunately died a few days after receiving, I believe, the Pfizer vaccine, and his wife had written a piece saying, you know, this we think this is vaccine related. So, can you walk us through that and what you what you think about that? Because I think it's making a lot of people nervous.
0: As I recall, it was a sort of middle-aged man who I think within three days of receiving a vaccine um, had a dramatic lowering of his platelet count. Um, And despite um, intense therapy of trying to give him the platelets he needed, they were unsuccessful at doing that. And he ultimately succumbed. You know, I mean, the SARS-CoV-2 vaccines are designed to prevent SARS-CoV-2, not everything else that happens in life. So the trick is going to be trying to sort out coincidental from causal associations. Um... It, it's, it's, there was such a, a dramatic decrease in his platelets. And and you wonder whether there was a complete shutdown of his body's capacity to make platelets at the level of megakaryocytes in the bone marrow. Hard to know. I, I mean, I think that, that the only way we're going to really know about this is to see what happens when hundreds of millions of people are vaccinated and, and see whether this, this comes up again. Otherwise, I think it's going to have to be chalked up as a likely coincidental association.
1: Right you know and and isn't uh, idiopathic thrombocytopedic purpura which is a, lo- a similar autoimmune low platelets particularly in children but can happen in adults is there an association with the MMR vaccination uh, for that and how does that differ from this situation
0: Right there is so so um The measles-containing component of MMR vaccine has been associated with thrombocytopenia. It usually happens 10 to 14 days after vaccination. It's usually transient and without consequence. I get these calls occasionally from pediatricians who will say, I just did a CBC on this child, has a dramatically low platelet count. Everything else is fine. The child looks good. Um, What could it be? And that's the question. Did the child get a measles-containing vaccine in the last couple of weeks? It it depends on who you read, but the instance is is estimated to be between one in 25,000 to one in 30,000. That said, measles, natural wild-type measles virus also causes thrombocytopenia. So the vaccine is doing something that the, uh, the wild-type virus also does, the natural virus also does, but at a much, much lesser rate, which is believable. Here, I mean, it's hard to understand why messenger RNA would, would shut down the synthesis of, uh, of platelets because it happens so fast that it, that in that case that you described that it's hard to believe it was based on an immune response to platelets.
1: Yeah, and again, it, it, like you said, and we need to be very clear about this, it could entirely be that his platelets were dropping well prior to that, the vaccine. It has nothing to do, it's just coincidental. Because if you, like you said, you vaccinate 7 million people, coincidentally, you're gonna have associations with bad events that were gonna happen anyways. And uh, it's very hard to tease out. And I understand they're doing an autopsy and things like that, and it's being investigated, which is very important. But I think, like you said, I think we have to watch, uh, you know, again, this vaccine is under a microscope like no other. Um, And uh, so I I think it'll be good to to see that. One thing you mentioned that I wanna wanna double down on a little bit is this idea that um, wild type virus, like getting infected with a normal virus in in the world can cause some of the similar things that you see with other attenuated or inactivated virus uh, vaccines. For example, the influenza vaccination with association with Guillain-Barre. So getting infected with natural flu has a higher association with causing Guillain-Barre. Is that right?
0: About 17 times higher. Therefore, you could argue for that reason that flu vaccine prevents Guillain-Barre syndrome.
1: Wow. You know, I've never even um, thought of it that way, but that makes perfect sense because that, that's used by a lot of people who are vaccine hesitant to say, you know, I don't wanna get Guillain-Barre, so I'm not gonna get the influenza vaccine. And the thing is, well, then if you actually come down with wild type flu, you're 17 times more likely to get Guillain-Barre if you're at risk for that anyway. So that, that's very important. Now, the other, I think, um, related question, do you have any updates on other vaccines that are in the pipeline now, or are we still really focused on these mRNA vaccines?
0: Well, so it looks like Johnson & Johnson's vaccine, which is a replication defective um, adenovirus type 26 vaccine, which again has in it uh, the gene that codes for the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, and at least has some commercial experience in that that's the vaccine that was used to try and eliminate the Ebola effect infection in West Africa. So it's been in tens of thousands of people. Um, that's probably next up if I had to make a guess. I mean, I think that that probably is going to be coming to our committee, the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee in February, if I had to take a guess, although I have no inside knowledge as to whether that's really true. That's my guess. The, the, but my understanding also is that initially, um, they were, they launched a, a single dose trial. Now they've also launched a, 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 two dose trial. So they're doing both a single dose and two dose trial, which makes you wonder whether or not there was a interim analysis that suggested that one dose was not as good as two doses and they wanna see whether the difference is dramatic. But again, I'm just trying to read tea leaves because you don't know. But I think wow. that would be next. And then you have the um, the UK AstraZeneca vaccine, which is a replication defective simian adenovirus, um, which is now in the midst of a two-dose trial in the United States. And when that gets completed, I'm sure we'll be hearing about that one.
1: Right, so Johnson & Johnson's is the one-dose hope, although like you said, they're looking at two-dose as well. And that kind of, so, Couple questions and then we wanna make sure we talk about this two dose controversy with the mRNA vaccinations and how we can think about that because people are quite concerned. Uh, and then I also wanna ask you just so people know what's coming here about um, what are the absolute contraindications for these mRNA vaccinations? Like how do you think about someone who's had COVID, who's had monoclonal antibodies, who has a history of autoimmune or immune compromise or uh, is pregnant and lack, uh, you know, breastfeeding. So we'll talk about those things. But back to this piece, is there a concern with these adenoviruses and replication-defective adenoviruses, these vectors? um, Are they more uh, complicationogenic? In other words, are, are we more concerned that you're gonna get some odd things like the transverse myelitis signal you saw in the AstraZeneca trial or something relative to these new mRNA vaccinations? Or what's your thinking on that?
0: I think we're learning. I mean, it, it's sort of the good news and bad news about replication-defective viruses. Uh, the good news is they're replication-defective, so they can't reproduce themselves and cause disease. The bad news is they don't amplify themselves, so you give a lot of viral particles in the vicinity of 50 billion viral particles. And and you wonder, I remember, I mean, I'm, you know, at the University of Pennsylvania, where in 1999, we had the Jesse Gelsinger experience. This was the first gene therapy death, where uh, this is a boy who had uh, an enzyme deficiency that allowed him to effectively eliminate uh, urea from, I'm sorry, effectively eliminate uh, ammonia from his body, ammonia being a product of uh, protein metabolism. So he was—he he, in order to provide him with the gene he needed, they used a replication defect of human adenovirus type five, given at a, a dose much higher than we're giving uh, these vaccines. But he had an overwhelming cytokine response, so called cytokine storm, from which he died. So that's sort of always in in my mind when I think about these vectors. And and I think you know, we just need to keep our eyes open. It's a you know, we we are an outbred population, we will respond to things differently. So we need to keep our eyes open. For that, Um, And then, yeah, there was with the UK vaccine, there were two clinical pauses, one in July, the other in September, both associated with um, essentially diseases that were associated with a similar pathogenesis. Um, One was uh, what was called undiagnosed multiple sclerosis. The other one was was so-called transverse myelitis, which is inflammation of a segment of your spinal cord, both of which are based on uh, essentially immune responses against myelin basic protein, which forms kind of the sheathing of nerve cells. Um, hasn't been hap- hasn't happened since, so um, we'll see as we move forward. But those were always in your head as something that uh, that might be a rare but real problem.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so then getting back to this question of the two vaccine, so the two dose regimen of these mRNA vaccines, both Pfizer and Moderna. Actually, even before we get into that, what are the real like if people ask? I I, I want. Um, I want the Pfizer one, or I want the Moderna one. It's funny, like a lot of nurses who are he- are hesitant about vaccines are like, I don't want either until more people have gotten it. I'm tired of being the guinea pig. A lot of doctors who are hesitant that talk to me are like, I don't want the Pfizer one. I'm waiting for the Moderna or vice versa. So, <laughs> I mean, again, uh, let, help, me, help me understand this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I remember once I was... Uh... I was waiting in line at the grocery store. And, and, and in this grocery, it was an Acme grocery store. They were giving flu vaccines in the back. And I remember one of the women, the two middle-aged women in front of me, one of them said, uh, are you going to get the flu vaccine here? And she said, you know, I don't want the Acme brand, which made me think, how do people think these vaccines are made? I think it was made, <laughs> made back there in like, you know, frozen food section.
1: <laughs> but. It's like brand loyalty, like any like consumer product. It's like, I don't think that's how this works. So, yeah,
0: but yeah. I think, you know, it's what what do people want? I mean, you have two large clinical trials, a 30,000 and 44,000 person trials showing that these two vaccines are 95% effective against disease, 95% effective, at least in people over over 65 years of age, very effective, arguably 100% effective against severe disease, Um, effective across all racial and ethnic backgrounds, effective all, all comorbidities have now been given to more than 7 million people and still they're hesitant. I mean, what are they waiting for? Um, this is if you if you ask people a year ago, uh, look here are the characteristics of this vaccine. Do you think this is a vaccine you would get? I, I don't know what what piece is missing that make people hesitate at this point.
1: Yeah, you know I actually put out our one of our earlier uh, talks back on Facebook where it was like, don't rush a vaccine. Like here are the things that we don't want to see happen. And those things didn't happen. (laughs) And actually, you know, again, the safety signal, the efficacy signal quite high. Let me play devil's advocate for a second though. So um, Doshi, I think one of the associate editors at BMJ had written a piece about, he looked at the data and he's like, you know, I don't know about that, that they're characterizing the efficacy correctly in these trials because of how they're defining symptomatic uh, cases and positives. Uh, Can you walk us through that controversy and explain kind of what you think?
0: Yeah, I, I, I don't have a lot of faith in Peter Doshi because he does speak at anti-vaccine conferences. I know oh,
1: number- I didn't realize that. OK, oh, yeah. sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt.
0: You know, he, he's in he's in, uh, I think, the Division of Pharmacy or Department of Pharmacy at the University of Maryland. Um, but he um, there are many people or I know there are a number of people who have written to the British Medical Journal and said, you know, this is the guy who is is an associate editor. Is it really sure you, you want this to be the guy? <laughs> and he certainly spoken, I think, at both of our FDA vaccine advisory committees. He was in into public comment, but he's, he certainly speaks at anti-vaccine conferences. So for that, he kind of loses me, but, um, no, he, he, his arguments are, you know, are we fairly characterizing disease and and severe disease? But I I think that I I, I don't see it. I, I, I think that the, both, uh, Pfizer and Moderna, although they have somewhat different, uh, um, rules for what they consider to be severe disease. I think that, that uh, as a general rule, if you look at the, the Pfizer data, there, there weren't a lot of people with severe disease under, under their guidelines, there were only about five, all in the placebo group in the, in the uh, Moderna trial, it was 30 in, and all again, all in the placebo group. I, I mean, it's, it's just ridiculous nitpicking at this point. You can't ask actually for better. Now that said, I mean, be humble. Uh, we don't know what we're going to see as we're moving forward. Certainly these are novel vaccine strategies and we may find something that surprises us. I, I so be open-minded to that. But at this point, uh, there's just nothing that one sees It's also, although it, this is a novel vaccine strategy, people have been working on mRNA vaccines, you know, for HIV and, and flu and, and malaria. And see really for 15 years. It's not, it's not really a novel research uh, strategy. And actually it was done at Penn. I don't know if you knew that, but hmm. Drew Weissman and, uh, Catalin, Kuroki, I think is how you pronounce her last name, are the ones that figured out how to stabilize messenger RNA using these you know, sort of nucleoside analogs like pseudouridine and and make it so that it was a more stable molecule, also that it didn't then induce um, innate immunity. It didn't act as an adjuvant. Right, Um, right. So it's really a a remarkable breakthrough. I mean, it may in the end be a Nobel Prize winning breakthrough when it's all said.
1: It, I mean, it'll give you goosebumps. And I remember when I... When I was lucky enough to receive the vaccine, I was in the right tier as a healthcare worker, and, uh, but I was lower than say somebody who's seeing patients all day, every day, and now they've opened it up even broader. And actually, I was actually hesitating to get it because I didn't want to take it from someone. You know, I, I, There was no way I was going to take an, a vaccination from someone who's seeing patients every single day in the ICU. And then I'm reading about 20, 30, 40% hesitancy rates in healthcare professionals and these vaccines sitting in refrigerators. And I said, you know what, there's no way I need to, first of all, I need to set of example. Second of all, I I want this vaccination because I don't want COVID and I don't wanna give it to my family and I don't want uh, to give it to someone else. Now, what, relating to that, and we can talk about hesitancy, but relating to that again, and we will get to this two dose question, I promise. But the, the, uh, the asymptomatic transmission after vaccination has come up in many forms as well, listen, do we really know, we don't know whether a vaccination, it prevents symptomatic disease, it prevents severe disease, but does it prevent asymptomatic infection and transmission? Because then how are we gonna ever have herd immunity if we can still get infected with with vaccines? So how, how do you like to talk about that?
0: So true, we don't know. The, the two studies that were done looked at prevention of disease, not prevention of infection. So it's possible that people could be asymptomatically infected shed. But the way I see this is, is that were that, even were that true, were, were there still asymptomatic infection? I, I would have bet that in people who are immunized, the degree to which they shed would be much less than someone who wasn't immunized. So I think they would be less contagious. I mean, you know, I was fortunate enough to be part of a team at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that created the rotavirus vaccine. I mean, that vaccine does not prevent asymptomatic infection. Nonetheless, um, as it was introduced in the United States and now is used, you know, by most, we virtually eliminated that disease here, even though that, that vaccine does not prevent asymptomatic infection. So I, th- because I think that, that in those children, those babies who are immunized, although they can still be asymptomatically infected, they shed less viruses. My guess is what's happening.
1: Wow, Uh, man, every time I think about that rotavirus vaccine that you were part of the development of, I just think I'm really standing in the presence of someone who's saved countless lives and yet will be vilified by anti-vaccine People into perpetuity, so no good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> yeah, it's Paul, twice this
0: week actually, I think two two threats this week. So oh, know.
1: good, just two. That's a downgrade from your baseline. I, I mean, you came to my studio that time, and there were people banging on the windows making threats. Um, so, <laughs> so, so back to this idea. So yes, I, I agree with you that I think this asymptomatic transmission thing. It, most of the vaccines we have, again just by creating immunity, lowering viral load, lowering shedding are gonna produce that. So this idea then I think that people are saying you you need to still wear a mask, you still need to distance, you still need to do those other things after the vaccine. Why are they saying that?
0: It's... well, first of all, it's not hundred percent effective. It's 95% effective. So you may be one of those one in 20 who's, who's, uh, who's get sick. Um, secondly, there still may be asymptomatic shedding and we don't know that. I think it's a belt and suspenders approach. I think if you had to a- answer the question, do I think people who are vaccinated that then wear, you know, masks and social distance, do I think that, that that would have a big impact on the transmission of this virus? Probably not, but, um, that's the current recommendation by the CDC.
1: Right, right, right. And they, I think they have to say that. I, you know, what I've been telling people is if we get enough people vaccinated, I think we can start changing that recommendation, but it needs to, we need to get it out. So th- now that gets to the second question. This idea of, hey, let's stop holding back the second uh, shot and release them all and get as many people the first shot as we can with the hope that we'll scale up manufacturing to get the second shot. So that, that's the framing of the question. And then the, <laughs> the question is, first of all, why two shots? Second of all, why are you shaking your head thinking that's a bad idea? So walk us through this. And I heard you on PBS NewsHour. By the way, it's always crazy, Paul, when I'm driving and I'm listening to the radio, and it was the Capitol riot week and everybody was focused was on that. And then I hear Paul off it and I'm like, wait, what? And uh, I'm listening to you and and you give this eloquent uh, thing and I'm like, hey, I know that guy. <laughs> it's it's kind of cool to know really amazing people, but also um, realize that the older I get, the more, uh, talk radio I listen to, which may, I don't know if that's a good thing, but anyways, back to the question, feel free to, to, to enlighten us on this.
0: So I think that what the Biden administration wants to do is they want to get as much vaccine out there as possible. Um, I think the way they initially announced it was a messaging problem, because what it sounded like was, let's just get people the first dose and then it, it, it we'll get them the second dose if they can. That's not what they meant to say. Uh, And I'll give you the evidence for why. Well, first of all, here's where it comes from. It comes from a number of people. There was an an op-ed piece written in the Washington Post Post by Dr. Shish Jha and Bob Wachter um, saying, look, if you look at the first dose, I mean, you do have efficacy. There's whatever, uh, 80 to 90% efficacy in the Moderna trial. Um, The problem with that is that uh, several fold. One is if you look at the Pfizer trial, which was, you know, where you get dose one at time zero, and then three weeks later, you get the second dose. There are then that there's that period of time between when you get the first dose before you get the second dose, where you can look to see whether people got sick, and the efficacy there was about 52 percent for Moderna. Where now it's four weeks, so it's a little longer between the first dose and second dose. Again, you can look to see whether people were protected. And depending on how you sliced it, do I include the first week? Do I include the first two weeks? Um, it's 80 to 90 percent effective for a for for four weeks. Uh, that's what you know. You know it's for four weeks. There's some data in people who didn't get that second dose that it could last as long as a couple months. But what you do know from the phase one trials, the so-called dose-ranging trials, is that the, the, the first dose um, induces an immune response that doesn't compare all that favorably to that induced by, by in, that found in human convalescent serum, meaning people who were naturally infected and survived. With the second dose, on the other hand, you get a dramatic increase in neutralizing antibodies. Plus, you get detectable T cell responses, which is consistent with memory and therefore likely long-lived immunity. So I think with the first dose, all you can say is that the fact that that the vaccine is likely effective for a few weeks, and that the vaccine likely doesn't do induce long-term immunity. So, so the fear is now you have all these people who think, great, eighty to ninety percent effective with one dose. You know, I had some symptoms with that first dose. Eighty to ninety percent, ninety-five percent, no big difference. I'll just skip the second dose. That's that's what worried me the most in this, or that people would, you know, there'd be such a delay in getting the second dose that that people either just didn't get it because there was such a delay, or that they were at risk because there was such a delay. I just thought the messaging was terrible. So, so hence what I said on uh, on PBS NewsHour. There, there was, uh, the next day, I talked to someone who was central to the Biden transition team who basically, um, we had a discussion. He said, this is not what we mean. We just think we have a better way of getting people two doses. And then that day, there were two people from the Biden transition team, Celine Gounder and uh, Michael Osterholm, who both went on TV and said, no, two-dose vaccine, Three weeks or four weeks later, that's what we're doing. We just think this is a better way to get two doses out there because it really made it sound like, you know, hey, one dose is good enough. I was actually on the Dr. Oz show talking about this with uh, uh, Dr. Jha, who's great. I mean, I think Dr. Jha, who's on TV, he's the Dean of Public Health at like, Ashish, yeah. University. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Right. And he's, uh, he's great. He's very good at explaining things simply. And when I read that op-ed in the Washington Post, I thought, you know, at two Dr. Ja, really, it's just, <laughs> um, yeah, but he was great. we had a conversation and I think, I think he actually, I think he softened his position a little bit on this because I, I, it would be a, a very bad if people thought one dose was good enough.
1: Oh, oh man. So, so, so much to say here. Okay. First of all, I need an EpiPen right now because I'm breaking out in hives because you mentioned he who shall not be named, the MD who shall not be named, Dr. Oz, all right? Why, why? <laughs> I know why, because you can reach a lot of people and that's lovely. Number next, um, the I wanna restate what you said, which is in that phase one dose ranging trial, there was evidence and i'd mentioned this in a separate video after hearing you on pbs which is <laughs> you you get a response but it's not as robust as getting infected with covid in after one dose and the t cell memory response that may be our key to durable response long-term happens after the second dose. So you, there's no guarantee you have good or lasting immunity after one dose. And there's a reason we're giving two doses based on the phase one trial, which is a dose ranging trial to figure out what's the dose, what's the frequency. They did that. And again, this whole idea that this thing was rushed. No, they did the phase one. They just took the risk out and didn't have to go through all that phase two, right? And then they did the full phase three. Am I misunderstanding that?
0: No, it's exactly right. I mean, That's it'd right. be great if it was if, if we could do it with one dose. I think Johnson Johnson may have an advantage of having a single-dose vaccine, but it didn't work out that way. That's why you needed that second dose. That's why we do phase phase one trials and then translate them to phase three trials. And you can't make it up after that. You then can't go, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, we know two doses, 95% effective, but let's just give one dose and, and see what happens. You can't do that. Plus, there is a fragile vaccine confidence in this country. If you gave one dose and you had people say four or five, six months later getting sick, you will have shaken that confidence and you can't afford to do that. Stick to the science. And and the Biden administration, to their credit, has consistently said, we will stick to the science. And when they came out with that, unfortunately, badly messaged uh, 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 statement, you know, Dr. Fauci stood up and said, no, the FDA stood up and said, no, this is a two dose vaccine. Um, so so I think people responded quickly and well. And ultimately, the Biden team, to their credit, have now gotten on TV and said, no, this is not what we meant. So all good. good. Good,
1: good, 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 thanks for clarifying that. You know, and then relating to this, so if you, let's say we did do a one dose, people stopped taking the second dose, does that increase the risk of vaccine escape? When, to clarify what that is, you know, you we have these new variants emerging of coronavirus, SARS-2 coronavirus, that, that have changes in spike protein. Now, you can tell us how likely it is that they're gonna actually develop resistance to the existing two mRNA vaccines, but regardless of that, would getting just a single vaccination increase the risk of getting these escape mutations uh, selected for?
0: Yes, you you want a powerful, strong virus-killing immune response. To so the extent the extent you have a less powerful immune response, um, you allow the virus to sort of limp along and figure out a way to escape. That's how you create escape mutants. So that was another uh, potential concern. But uh, but again, just you know, two-dose vaccine. The, this this administration is committed to that. And frankly, you know, if you look at you know, kind of. You know this business about we need to get more first doses out there the the in the mass mass uh production mass distribution mass administration the problem really is in administration we've only given about a third of the vaccine that's out there so the problem isn't as much getting more vaccine out there as administering more vaccine
1: yeah so getting it into arms and and that's not easy either because people have to wait 15 minutes there, there's a process but it can be done. We just have to put effort and money into it. And it seems like we're putting lots of effort and money into other things. Uh, so we should really do this. H- how much um, How much concern do you have that these variants that are emerging are gonna ultimately display or develop vaccine escape and be resistant to the current uh, line of mRNA vaccinations?
0: Right. So you probably should never make any prediction about this virus because it's you're like always wrong. But the certainly the the UK variant, the B one one seven variant, is not an escape virus. I mean, the both looking at convalescent sera as well as sera generated from people who were inoculated with Pfizer's vaccine, that those sera neutralize this virus. So it, it is it is just like the variant virus in terms of its ability to be neutralized by either um, being naturally infected or or being immunized or being immunized um, the the South African variant still the, the data that I've seen I still haven't seen really that that study. You want to see that study where you look at convalescent human serum and you look at people who were inoculated with either Pfizer or Moderna's vaccine. Does that clearly neutralize this virus in a neutralization assay? I spent a lot of time uh, growing up in this in this world of vaccine research, doing neutralization assays, plaque reduction neutralization assays. They're not that hard. I don't understand why when they do these these get these viruses in hand, they can't within a week, let us know those studies. They do the monoclonal antibody studies, but that's not really what you want to see because we are generating polyclonal, not monoclonal antibody responses. And I believe there can be an escape for one or two, you know, one or two so-called epitopes, immunologically distinct regions on that receptor binding domain. But those are the data you want to see. And and they're not quick to generate them. We we need to be better at this. We need to just be able to sequence these viruses much quicker in the US. When we identify variants, we need to then, within, within days, know whether or not, there's any evidence of escape, because if that's true, that's a problem. I mean, if we really do need to make a different vaccine for a different virus, imagine how hard it is just to get this one vaccine out there, much less having to do more than that. And so, and, and, and when we identify those viruses, we need to really uh, I quarantine them, isolate people and look for spread because that would be a problem.
1: Yeah, you know, we use the term on the show, science the crap out of it. Like that's what we ought to be doing with these things, right? And it's funny that you said that these things are not hard. These, you know, neutralization assays are not that hard to do. We ought to be, we ought to be doing that. You know, one related question to that. So, you know, when you make the spike protein, there are multiple epitopes on the protein, right? That can generate antibody response. And this is vaccine generated spike protein. So it would take multiple sites before you develop escape, correct?
0: Exactly right.
1: Right. But the virus is being selected for if you're putting that pressure on it. So, in other words, if there's a bunch of people that are kind of partially vaccinated and the virus can still replicate in them, you're selecting for virus that is resistant to what you're generating with the vaccine. That is a disaster waiting to happen in the sense that you're gonna need a new vaccine, new mRNA email to send to the cells. And, and again, like you said, it's so hard to do one vaccine. Now we've got to spin up a variant of it. So and the other question that's related to that is a lot of people ask me, well, how will I know if I'm like a non-responder to the vaccine? Is there an antibody test commercially available that people can ch- test their immunity like for hepatitis or something?
0: There is. a problem is um, there's not yet in hand a clear immunological correlate, meaning where you can say, look, if I have this antibody response, I know I'm protected. I mean, usually the the, the key information there comes from the so-called breakthrough cases, meaning in the case of uh, the the, uh, Pfizer um, trial, there were eight people who got the vaccine yet still got sick from the virus. In the case of the Moderna, there was uh, 11 people who got the vaccine but still got sick. You'd like to look at their antibody response to see whether or not they had a lesser antibody response after that second dose than those who... Were protected, then you can say, look, if you have this antibody response, then you're going to be protected. That question was asked both times in both those FDA vaccine uh, uh, advisory committee meetings. They were at, that was asked of the the, the sponsors and meaning the uh, the companies and and both times they said, look, we'll have those data in January. It surprises me they didn't have those data, but but mm. not that hard to do. Love to see what those data are. And, and let's so let's suppose that the answer is no. They had the same neutralizing antibody response as everybody else. Maybe that's not what we need to be looking at. Maybe we need to be looking at frequency of memory B or T cells or something other than what we're looking at to, to get a correlate. There are a number of vaccines on the market that don't have immunological correlates. It's not as easy as people think. I mean, I okay. think it's likely that this would be the correlate, but it doesn't always work out that way.
1: Interesting. Yeah, that's really helpful because I've been trying to wrap my head around that. a lot of people asking that question. The other, people, a lot, uh, other thing people are asking is, I had COVID recently, I'm currently infected with COVID, Uh, I'm positive, can I get the vaccine? What's your thinking on that? Should they even get it? What's going on?
0: So yes, uh, for two reasons. One, first of all, programmatically, it's very hard to say, okay, we're going to screen everybody and see who's been infected, who isn't, and then we're just going to give the vaccine to people who uh, who haven't been infected. Secondly, the, the Pfizer trial, not the Moderna trial, but the Pfizer trial actually included people who were or were not previously infected. And so there, they actually got to see whether or not there was any advantage to, to being vaccinated. There were um, there were 162 cases, well, there, there were there were. There were eight people who um, who who um, had been previously infected. That then um, either um, well, in, in, in the, in the, for the people who had been previously infected, that got the vaccine. There were seven people who got sick in the placebo group, and and one in the vaccine group. So so therefore, the, there was a booster response associated with that vaccine. So there was actually an advantage to getting that that vaccine. Uh, um, I, the uh, numbers were small, but but it, it was encouraging.
1: So certainly no disadvantage, potentially an advantage. So whether or not you've had wild type infection, good idea to get the vaccine is the punchline.
0: Yes, I think that's right.
1: And is there any temporal reason, like you just had coronavirus infection, is there any reason you can't get vaccinated now?
0: right. So the CDC's recommendation is if you've been infected, wait till your symptoms are gone and then get the vaccine. Or if you are in quarantine, for example, wait till you're out of quarantine and then get the vaccine. That's the CDC rec.
1: That makes sense. And I imagine that's partially just because you don't want to confuse symptoms of the coronavirus infection with vaccine adverse event. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, that makes sense. And then relating to that, people who've gotten the monoclonal antibody treatments, uh, I guess CDC was saying three months before you can get the vaccine, or am I wrong? And why would they say that?
0: Yeah, so 90 days is the recommendation. The thinking being that um, when you're given these antibody preparations, that that so now you have a high quantity of, uh, of virus neutralizing antibodies in your bloodstream. When you then get the vaccine and then you're, you know, you make the messenger RNA, you excrete the protein or put the, put that spike protein on the surface of your cells. Those antibodies will sort of, you know, kind of sop it up so that your immune system doesn't get to see it as easily. So, so just wait three months. So, so for example, when, when, uh, when Donald Trump got his uh, Regeneron, his monoclonal antibodies, and that was that was about three months ago, so he then could now get this vaccine around the time of Biden's inauguration.
1: Got it. That now that makes a lot of sense because you're basically blocking um, with these uh, administered antibodies your body's own ability to to yeah makes perfect sense. So relating to that,
0: um, are they unblinding now
1: the placebo group in these big trials and giving them vaccine?
0: So they're unblinding them. Um, the 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 issue of whether and who gets vaccine and who doesn't. I think pretty much where people have settled out on this is that if you would get the vaccine normally, like you're in you know you're in living or, or working in a long-term care facility or you're a essential health care worker, that you if you would be up to get the vaccine, then get the vaccine. The question is, I think one of the companies actually said had made the promise that if you are part of this trial and then you're unblinded and you didn't get the vaccine, you will be getting that vaccine. If that was the promise that was made, then keep it. Um, yeah because you know people when they admit to when they submit themselves to these trials they, they they go through a lot they get you know they get tested frequently they get their blood tested frequently so it's a lot to do that so i think that's that's fair
1: right right it's fair from a fair standpoint it is i think from a pure science standpoint wouldn't you love to see a persistent placebo group moving forward months and years sure. but it is yes. what it is it makes sense now the other people uh, I, I don't know if this came up in the uk or where it came up but the idea of Oh, you got a Pfizer first dose. Eh, the Moderna is available. Take the second dose as Moderna. What, what what's your thinking on that?
0: So no, so you can't mix. No, I yeah. mean these are these are two different molecules, as, rep- as expressed by the fact that one's given at thirty micrograms, the other is given at hundred microgram dose. So these are different different molecules. So no, the the CDC is clear on this. You don't mix those two vaccines.
1: Don't mix them together. And you're thinking on uh, pregnancy and breastfeeding.
0: So it's interesting. Normally, the CDC, in the absence of the data, will say contraindicated. So there were 23 people who were um, who became pregnant. There were or became pregnant during the Pfizer trial. There were 13 people who either were or became pregnant during the Moderna trial. Not many people. Um, and they pretty much broke down as placebo or vaccine. There were two cases of spontaneous abortion, one in each trial. In both cases, it was a placebo recipient. Um, there's no reason to believe biologically that this this vaccine would be detrimental to either to the pregnant woman or to her unborn child. And so the, the CDC did something they don't usually do. They said, Um, if you're pregnant, you may choose to get this vaccine. Or if you're breastfeeding, you may choose to get this vaccine because certainly women who are pregnant are more likely to suffer severe uh, infection with SARS-CoV-2 than women of the same age who aren't pregnant. That you know. So that's the known. The unknown is whether there would be a problem. I can tell you that's the most frequent question I get asked, including by doctors in our hospital who know what the CDC has recommended, but they just want a little hand-holding because they're nervous about this. And it's understandable. I think um, you know, you're you you you're responsible for that that little life growing inside you and you want to make sure you don't do anything. When you're injected with a biological, no matter how much you know, it still just feels wrong. It, I mean, when our son was born, Will, um, you know, and he got his hepatitis B vaccine at, at uh, a day of age, um, you know, it just feels bad. I mean, you know, just no matter how much you know about virology or immunology, um, it just feels bad to watch that happen. It's like the first scratch on your car.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's a great analogy actually because I remember when my my kids, uh, my first child, got the you know uh, first series of vaccinations, including hepatitis. It was it was this like visceral fight or flight. Like, what are you doing with a needle? And, and you know, I, I actually have this idea, this theory that needle fear is actually much more prominent and in a conditioned response then we give it credit for, and it doesn't manifest as, oh, I'm scared of needles. It manifests as, I did research on the internet and I found Doshi saying stuff about the vaccine trial and I believe him. And um, I do wonder whether that's a component of that. And that, that brings me up to this question of hesitancy in healthcare professionals, because we can talk about the public another time probably, but I think healthcare professionals have expressed quite a bit of hesitancy. What's your thinking on why that is and how we might understand it and maybe overcome it?
0: No, it, it's really heartbreaking. I, I think that if if they're hesitant because they just um, don't feel there's enough data out there yet, or they don't know the data, then then, then they are convincible. If they're hesitant because they um, don't trust the system, that they think that, you know, the pharmaceutical companies are lying to them, or the government's lying to them, or the medical profession's lying to them, then you're not going to get very far. Um, there, are, there are definitely People even at our hospital who've chosen not to get the vaccine because they just don't trust don't trust it. And it's not it's not the first thing. It's not lack of knowledge. It's not going to be it's not going to be handled by providing information. It's just a general distrust of the system. And I don't know how you handle that.
1: It's pure uh, um, unconscious and conscious bias against that that whole structure. It's tough because I've told people, you know, if you're in healthcare and you elect not to take the vaccine, then I don't wanna hear you complaining about your PPE. I don't wanna s- see pictures of you on social media showing the marks from your PPE. We have a solution that's highly efficacious that uses the structure and tools that we use in our profession, which are randomized control trials and large amounts of data. and it, if, if if that's something you don't want, then I don't wanna hear about the other stuff. And also I don't wanna hear you going on social media, telling patients, I didn't get the vaccine because I don't trust them or whatever, because then you're also modeling behavior that's gonna be harmful to patients. I think everyone has a right to make decisions, but uh, that's my concern is is we have a certain sacred um, trust in our profession, especially nurses who have more trust than us, Paul, Like like the public values their opinion almost more than they, definitely more than they value us, which I think is actually generally a good move (laughs) because they actually are there with the patient, right? Whereas we're a little bit, you know, uh, we're us. Um, And so that, that piece, you know, I think approaching with love and understanding and compassion can help. I think in my platform, we're trying to do that. Getting really smart people on to talk about it, I think is important, but that deep distrust requires an understanding of their what I call their elephant, their unconscious, you know, bias, and and frontal attacks never seem to work with that. You know, I've tried; uh, it, it doesn't work. So we, we have to think that through a little bit more. But one thing I'll say is, as many people as we can convince that this is the right thing to do, it's now becoming COVID is now a preventable disease, and uh, to not prevent it seems to me you're costing lives that are absolutely unnecessary to cost when we have 370,000 dead already.
0: Right, it's awful.
1: It it really is. Do you have any other things you wanted to discuss in terms of distribution rollout, anything else, Paul?
0: Yeah, I I would like to offer this message of hope. I think things are gonna get better, and I think they're gonna get dramatically better, and here's why. First of all, we now have two vaccines that are highly effective that now have been given, thank goodness, to more than 7 million people with, without an apparent evidence of, of a rare serious adverse event. That's great. And we have a clear interest in in the on-incoming the on administration in trying to figure out how to vaccinate us. And we're not going to have to go through this cult of denialism anymore, where we just have to shut our eyes really tight and hope it all goes away. So that's good. Um, we have likely two more vaccines that are going to be coming out with in the next month or two in all likelihood. So that should make it even easier in terms of getting vaccine out there. Um, and I think that, that um, the weather will get warmer as it gets warmer and more humid and hotter. I think that makes it less easy for the virus to be transmitted. So all that's going to happen over the next few months. And then one thing that's true, and we never talk about it because it's so awful, um, the, the price that we had to pay for it, Um, you know, it's listed as roughly 23 million people are are listed as having been infected in the United States. But what that means is those are people who've been tested and found to be uh, infected. I mean, there are a lot of people who who haven't been tested. And when you do sort of serological surveys to try and and better answer the question, how many people have really been infected? When they did that study in November, they showed that 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 figure was probably off by a factor of four. But let's just assume it's off by a factor of three. So 22 million is probably 66 million, which is roughly 20% of the population who are immune. Uh, You know, that's, we paid a ridiculously high price for that but they're immune. I, I think it's very unlikely that when re-exposed to this virus, they're going to get sick. So you already have a base of 20%. If you look at the there's a formula actually for the for the number of people that you percentage of the population you need to vaccinate in order to stop spread of the virus. Um it's in there's a book called Plackins Vaccines. It's in a chapter called Community Immunity by, by Paul Fine. But the 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 formula is this. So I'm gonna really bore your listeners. Um it, if the, the it depends on two things, just what you would expect it would depend on contagionces of the virus. Obviously obviously. obviously the more contagious the virus, the higher percentage of people you need to inoculate and vaccine efficacy. Obviously the higher the vaccine efficacy, the fewer people you would need to vaccinate. So the formula is R naught, which is the contagiousness index, minus one over R naught divided by the percent efficacy. Okay, so if the R is two, let's say, for the purposes of this discussion, two minus one over two is 0.5. If you take the vaccine efficacy at 0.95 and divide, so 0.5 divided by 0.95 is roughly 0.55, that's 55%. If you can vaccinate 55%, of the population, in theory, you could stop spread. Now that doesn't include, it really should be uh, efficacy against contagiousness. So we don't really know that yet, but let's assume that, if, that even if you are contagious, you're much, much less contagious. So let's say 60%. You need to vaccinate 60% of the population. You've got 20% is already, is already probably immune, and they're going to be in your 60% uh, or your, your people that you're vaccinated. But I think if you can, if you really can vaccinate a million to a million and a half a day, and I think we can do that, we're already up to over 500,000 a day. I think we're starting to get it in terms of the mass vaccination thing. Pennsylvania Convention Center now is a mass vaccination site, and I think that's going on spouting up o- over or across this country, we can get to a million a a half a day, then you can get to half the population, 60% of the population by May or June, and uh, then I think we could stop the spread by early summer. I think that's really possible.
1: Man, that is exactly what we need to hear right now, is this uh, hopeful message, because I, I think that's it. There's an escape here. I think we're reaching a tipping point in general. I think things are going to wake up, and we'll get through this, and like you said, I think w- the, the temperatures are a key component. I think the existing community immunity is a big component. I love the fact that you guys have this like, this guide. It, you know, you remind me of Egon from Ghostbusters and <laughs> uh, and Tobin's spirit guide. <laughs> Just to make sure you understand the different slimers and vapors that can attack and, form, and make a formula to, to understand how to prevent it. Uh, that's great. And, and that also speaks to these kind of ideas that like Fauci throws out different numbers for what Existing herd immunity should be right, and uh, there's actually ways to calculate this, and it really depends on contagiousness. Now, do you think these new mutant variants are going to increase R naught and make it a little harder?
0: Could it's certainly true that uh, that the uh, the UK variant has increased the R naught by about zero point four, which is not trivial when you're talking about uh, populations of people. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Man, Paul, oh gosh, I, I could literally talk to you for another three hours, but I know you're running out of time. This was a gift as always to the audience. Um, I, Again, I can't express how grateful I am that, that you, you teach us and uh, and all the work that you've done and do continue to do, educating the public and making vaccines yourself, So and teaching. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, you'll come back, right?
0: Yeah, for sure. Thanks for asking me. It's fun. I mean, this is my most fun interview. I love this. <laughs> you get to talk about things like Ghostbusters. I mean, you can't do that on CNN.
1: You know what? It's just that you won't do it on CNN, Paul. I think you <laughs> need to just lay down the gauntlet, go, listen, if you want me to be on James Earl Jones on your network, I will make a Ghostbusters reference, right? Offer mm-hmm. him a Snickers. Go, ah, you've earned it. Um, all right, Paul, thanks a million. You guys share the video and we out. Peace. Thanks, man.